I forbid you, maidens all, that wear gold in your hair, to come or go by Carter Hall, for young Tamlin dwells there. There's none that goes by Carter Hall, but they leave him a pledge, either their rings or green mantles, or else their maidenhead. What you just heard was a sample of the traditional folk ballad of Tamlin, which we will discuss later on in this episode. We chose this tale as it is incredibly rich with symbolism of what remains of the pagan traditions of the British Isles and their beliefs regarding the afterlife in particular. Our episode today focuses not just on the afterlife, but the place between our world and the next. Touching on beings from beyond, how to work with them, and how to protect ourselves, we will explore the true nature of those between the worlds. We also weave into our episode today the ancient concept of the wild hunt and the wealth of tradition and history that contains clues to the deeper layers of our tales. So, dear listeners, welcome to another episode of The Seer and the Star, Episode 5, Threshold Magic and the Wild Hunt. Welcome to the Seer and the Star, where we traverse the realms of the magical, the mystical, and the path to higher healing and awakening to one's own inner gnosis through ritual practice. I'm Juniper. And I'm Priscilla. And today we are sitting in a beautiful cemetery. Priscilla, would you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. This is the historic Riverside Cemetery in Asheville, North Carolina, where many of the founding uh, people, mostly fathers, uh, have been laid to rest, many of them, as well as the writers Henry O. and Thomas Wolfe. And we are also surrounded by many oak tree friends of a venerable age and as we've been sitting here preparing to record, I've also seen friend Downy Woodpecker and Robin, American Robins, and we can hear Blue Jays occasionally, and um, the sounds of the neighborhood of Montford in which Riverside Cemetery sits, and hopefully more that than the highway, which is also near, sadly. But uh, Oh, and also it's the cicada year, so you may hear our friends the cicadas who've been putting on quite the show this summer. And we are graced by green. That is the grave we are sitting closest to. So thank you, green, for allowing us to be here. All right. (laughs) So returning to our theme today of working with threshold magic, I think it's important to weave in here 
that the area that we're in with the Appalachian Mountains is very similar to the area that the Scots-Irish hail from. And these similarities also correlate in the energetics of earth points. And as you know, I talk a lot about gridding in my practice. Today, I'm going to explain to you about spots on the earth where the supernatural beings tend to show up. And these are called hauntings. What is a haunting? A haunting, at least in my studies with my wonderful teacher that I had out in California, Marza Millar, we studied how to heal points on the earth. And one of the things we did is we went to a ghost town in California, uh, Bodie, California. This was obviously a town that was completely abandoned and we were studying the energy that gets left over. I think it's important to note that when we think of hauntings today, a lot of us go straight to the ghost story of a disembodied spirit. But through at least my studies, I've learned that the most common types of hauntings are actually time loops and poltergeists. The least common is disembodied spirit, however, it does happen. What's so interesting is that the earth, just like our bodies, have points in which energy tends to get stuck or move or coagulate, that it tends to have points, like marma points, like in acupuncture, there are points where an acupuncturist will put the needles in order to get the energy to flow a certain way. Well, Earth is very similar. It has this grid, a magnetic grid that runs through it. You can typically see evidence of this with water and the way that water flows. Another tradition here in Appalachia is called water witching, and that's where they take uh, willow rods, branches of willow, to find water. So it's kind of the same concept here. So a haunting typically occurs in a place on the earth where the energy is stuck, okay? So when something happens, like a waterway is redirected that carries a magnetic pull, goes against the natural flow of the grid of the earth, the ley lines of the earth. When we redirect it, it causes a whole bunch of mess. <laughs> so that's one way that a point gets disturbed on the earth. Another way is that if a traumatic event happens on a point of the earth, that it's so big that it leaves an imprint on the energetic field. When these things happen when either water is redirected or we have a traumatic event and the imprint of the energetic field is disturbed and gets stuck, it becomes dense. Like think about in a river when a dam is built and all the water begins to pool in this one area and it's just so dense. So the same with energy. So basically what happens is this energy just grows and grows and grows and it just keeps sucking. It just keeps sucking the dense energy in. Like attracts like, we have talked about the theory of resonance several times already. Again, with hauntings, it's the same type of thing. So with the theory of resonance, this dense energy is attracting more dense energy. So again, these energies are stuck. 
you go to the most haunted places, for instance, and you always hear of all these different ghosts. Well, think about how dense that energy is that they're all stuck there. So how do we work with this, right? As I mentioned, the three types of hauntings are time loops, they are poltergeists, and the least common disembodied spirits. Well, all of this is because of stuck energy. Wilhelm Reich, if you're not familiar with Wilhelm Reich, he was a scientist and doctor, and he coined the term organ, which is the same energy that flows through all things. Life force energy, key, prana. And Wilhelm Reich actually studied it and measured it. So one of the studies that he did was in Germany, and he studied these houses where people had cancer, and he called them sick points on the earth. He basically discovered that these places had a rating of organ, that's what he called it, he called dead organ when the energy was so dense, had super high ratings. And then he discovered that the waterways in this town had all been incredibly redirected, and especially in these houses. So anyway, so time loops are when an event happens, something traumatic happens, and it gets imprinted so much on the energetic grid that at the same time, Sometimes every time of night, sometimes every time of week or month or year, the event happens in the energetic. And so we can experience this, uh, especially those of us that are sensitive. We can experience it by, you know, maybe we hear noises, maybe we see an apparition or see these energy lines that get stuck in time. Then you have poltergeist, and that's more of when the energy is so heavy and dense that it just it just moves things. Things are thrown around, doors open. You know, I've seen things like, you know, dishes be thrown from cabinets before. And then again, like I said, the last thing is a disembodied spirit, a spirit that's actually trapped, which does happen. So how do we heal these points on the earth? Well, I was taught to build a grid. And again, bringing the concepts of grids back, as we've mentioned in our previous episodes, gridding is not just used for creating your energetic container and keeping the container, but it's also used to create lighter energy. So building a grid creates the spinning of energy, and it creates it, as we've mentioned before, in a toroidal motion, a torsion field where the energy spins upwards. And again, connecting the theory of resonance, like attracts like. So when the energy starts to move and spin upwards, rather than getting stuck in one spot, it becomes lighter. It becomes less, it becomes less magnetic for more dense energies, like attracts like. Dense energies can't live where light energies are. And I'm not using light and dark in terms of good or bad, I hope you know. There are many types of experiences on both sides of the spectrum. I will say maybe higher frequency energies versus lower frequency energies make a big difference. Theory of resonance. So anyway, that's a little bit about hauntings and how they happen. But the third type of haunting that I want to talk about, a disembodied spirit, Though it's the most rare, it does happen, and it's something that I actually have quite a lot of experience with. 
It's just something that has been natural throughout my life, as I've explained in previous episodes. So I wanted to go over a little bit of how to deal with a disembodied spirit, how to work with disembodied spirits. So a disembodied spirit, it's a spirit that gets stuck within the threshold. The threshold is a place that's a liminal space between the dimensions or between the worlds. And if you think of a doorway, it's like someone getting stuck. They just can't get through. They just can't get through the door. They're like not purgatory. Like purgatory. Like the story of the dream in last episode, the last episode that we spoke about, how that spirit was stuck in purgatory. These souls get stuck in between and usually it's because that they're not able to come to grips with leaving this life. Through my experiences of encountering these disembodied spirits, I have found that what they really want in order to be able to let go is their story to be told. So I have several stories that I can tell of encounters and dreams. And I was going to tell you this one story about a friend of mine that had committed suicide several years ago and decided to grace me with his presence while I was in California learning all of this stuff. <laughs> um, but instead, I think I'm going to tell you about a dream that I had because I think it's important to give you a little more of the storylines. As I've mentioned in other episodes, I tend to dream a lot about dead people and I tend to have the flashes before a dream. So one night I had a flash and I went into the dream space and I found myself in this house and it was the 1970s and there were three women and a bunch of kids and it was kind of an apartment it was, and it felt like maybe like a Florida apartment or something but basically there were basically two of the women were the ones that were really guiding me through one her name was Lisa and the second one this tends to be a theme was mute I've kind of done a lot of thinking about this because I tend to encounter one that actually speaks a spirit that speaks accompanied by a mute spirit and I'm thinking this is sort of the fragmentation of one spirit. It's kind of what I've come to and, and I'd like to explore that more maybe in another episode. So these, these two spirits were telling the story, one through words and the other through pictures and guidance, literally taking my hand and guiding me. Lisa, the older one, seems like the biggest, the oldest sister, told me about this terrible thing that happened to their whole family where they were burned alive in a fire um, that unfortunately was set by their father and it was a very sad story and it was interesting because like as she was telling the story I could see things around me starting to shift and fade away there was a back door and I'm gonna call her little Lisa I don't know why. Big Lisa and Little Lisa is, is kind of what I describe their names. <laughs> Little Lisa, after Big Lisa told me her story, the story of the family, grabbed my hand and we walked through a patio door. 
And when we walked into, when we walked through the doorway, we were in this field and it was lush and green and there were all these people wandering, just wandering silently, aimlessly, silently, just walking, walking, just, it just, with no, it seems like nobody really knew where they were going. At one point, little Lisa let go of my arm. I stood there by myself and realized where I was, which was in the liminal space. I was, I was in the underworld. I was in a place where I was about to go further into the underworld. And these souls were all just wandering in this, in this space of, you know, between the worlds. At one point, this woman wearing this white dress stops and she looks at me and her skin is completely blue. And she says, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. When she said that, I woke up. This dream that I'm sharing with you, I'm sharing because this was the first time I realized the importance of the story. Because as Big Lisa was telling me their story, more of their walls started to fade away. The walls started to disappear and we were able to cross into at least a waiting room in the realm of the underworld. I have many other stories I can tell. The one that I was going to tell for this episode of more direct doorways. But through other experiences, the same thing tends to happen where I get their story. And, and this doesn't just happen in dreams. I'll say that this does happen sometimes in places that I'm in, when I'm in a, a place that has a disembodied spirit or a time loop or poltergeist activity, I sometimes just by touching the walls can hear the stories. This can be tolerable for some, for some people, like myself, because I'm used to it. And for other people, this is very uncomfortable when the energy is so dense and thick. So how do we deal with it? But we do something like a home clearing. We want us, the, the living, want to be comfortable in our homes and feel safe in our homes and feel like we are the only masters of our own home, just like our bodies. We want to be the only masters of our own bodies. Home clearings, as I said before, gritting is one way to do this, but also crossing the spirit over, asking to make contact with the spirit, and really sitting and listening, listening to get their tales. And as most people who have worked on developing their intuition in this way may know, you have to trust what comes through. And usually it's the first thing that does come through that is the actual story and um, what I recommend is sitting there with pen and paper lighting a candle make sure your ritual container is set by the way and asking the spirit its story and just begin to write see what comes through I've had many many experiences with writing in this way and I know a lot of people that I've recommended this to that have had the experience of being able to cross over these spirits or a spirit that maybe was stuck. That's one way. 
There are also many other tools and maybe in another episode we'll get even deeper into that because we have a lot to talk about. But now I think it's important to talk about ourselves, not just protecting our homes, but our own temples, our bodies, and our minds, and what happens when we're in one of these dead organ spots, or when something happens in our life even, that feels like an invasion. It feels like it's not safe for us. Have you ever walked into a room and just immediately felt uncomfortable? And you're like, wow, I need to get out of here, or I need to protect myself? Well, in the theme of protection magic and and working with thresholds, I think it's important to talk about how to protect yourself and not just your home. There are tools that you can use. For instance, wearing a black tourmaline or having black tourmaline around you is really important, is really helpful because there are two gates in your body in which if an entity were to enter, it would enter through. And these are called the nongrel and the tongrel gates. They are the front and the back of the solar plexus. Black tourmaline has the effect of blocking these gates, of protecting these gateways so that energies can't infiltrate. I will also say a side note on what you can do to protect yourself if you tend to have these issues. Drinking alcohol, there's a reason it's called spirits. (laughs) Because it literally can lead to holes in your auric field where spirits can get in. But even if this is not the case, if we want to really protect ourselves, there is something that you can do as a daily practice that I think I've mentioned that I do in my daily practice, which is called the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram. I really love this ritual because it's something, it takes me, it depends how long you really want (laughs) to go into it, but it takes me five minutes every day. I do this every day because I'm not just clearing my space and my home and my temple, but I'm also clearing myself from the energies that influence my thoughts and perceptions. So bringing me into clarity of mind and wholeness in my being and sovereignty in my being. So that's an amazing tool to use. The last thing that I think that I want to mention about protection is shielding. So this happens in many different forms. Some people envision a light bubble around them when they are in a place that feels unsafe. The way that I was taught to do this, creating my shield and my bubble, again, extending the sphere of light all around me, but then I also cloak myself because I don't want to attract like moths to a flame, these entities, because I tend to attract, (laughs) I tend to attract disembodied spirits, as I said. So I put a shell around my light bubble that is a black mirror. Um, So I envision it as a black mirror around me. And sometimes I have other spirits within my bubble that help protect me, such as dogs. Like wolves, canines, or even just the archangels. But the most simply simple way that I shield is just a huge bubble of light and a black mirror, so to speak, around that that I can still see out of. And there are doors and windows here. I just want to let you know. I have doors and windows. So. 
Would you like to add anything, Priscilla? Sure. Um, one thing that I'll mention since we um, are in the realm of the Golden Dawn, which is where that what you just described comes from, right? I'm not sure where it originates, originates exactly. But uh, Dion Fortune was a great author and in that tradition, and she wrote an incredible book called Psychic Self-Defense. And one of the things that she describes in that book is, uh, and this is only kind of in the case of an emergency when you're in a situation where you need immediate protection because it does cost a little bit of personal life force is to throw up pentagrams around you in the space. Um, and that has been quite effective for me. And the only other thing I would add to clearing is um, one of my teachers, a woman named Mary Mooney, who lives in Raleigh, who I had the pleasure of having as my um, mother-in-law for many years, is also a healer and a channel. And she taught myself and my husband a good deal about entity removal which I'm not going to go too far into what entities are or aren't right now um, because we're really not talking about that. We're talking about uh, more, like you said, disembodied um, human energies. Her method of helping those energies to move to the other side where they belong, and this of course all happens in psychic space, is to open a hole, uh, to, to make an opening to, and this is done once the energy or entity, ha you have its attention and you're communicating with it, and to indicate that this opening exists and that friends and loved ones are waiting and there is an essence of home on the other side of this portal for that energy to go to where it belongs and to help facilitate the movement, as you said, the crossing over. Um, of the spirit in that way. So that's what I would add. And I also wanted to share a story as well of, of an experience. Um, I don't have the same kind of regular contact with the dead that you do, though I have had a couple of experiences that I'm pretty sure were disembodied beings, though they appeared in full flesh. I know that's sometimes in folklore that happens. So I've had two or three experiences that um, where that happened, and I'm inspired to tell this story because you said that it is important for the spirit to help them make the transition, to have their story told. And at first I was reluctant to tell this story in fullness because the way that this person died is, um, is quite unhappy and violent. but. Uh, in the spirit of honoring this person's life and death, I'm going to go ahead and tell the full story and maybe having it broadcast in this way will bring some relief. It was in November, I believe it was, um, it was 2017 or 2018, I can't remember exactly, but in, in fact this made the news so it, it can it can be looked up. and. There was a, a couple um, in my neighborhood in Candler, and they were arguing in their car. The woman's daughter uh, was in the car from another relationship, another marriage, and the couple was arguing vehemently, and the man was driving, and he pulled over, and he dropped them off at what used to be the Bilo on Smoky Park Highway, and um, is now a church, I think, the Rock Church. 
dropped he dropped them off and they were walking down the sidewalk and he turned and he ran them over I was obsessed with this event the girl who the, the mother made it she survived the girl made it to the hospital but she did not survive and she was young she was I'm not sure if she was maybe in fourth or fifth grade but her schoolmates came and they created a memorial out of the spot where she was killed and I passed it every day on my way home and I just couldn't stop thinking about this um, this place and this event that had occurred and it was so terrible and I you know I connected with it as a young person you know I'm sure many people have been in that horrible experience of having your parents argue in your presence and the fear that comes up and so I talked to a very good friend of mine about this I wanted to I said you know I just I need to process this somehow I want to like take a picture of this place and put it by my bedside and she was like no don't do that but but go to the spot and and see see what you can see or feel what you can feel and maybe that will help you resolve it which I did and as I'm standing there um, amidst all the teddy bears and flowers in on the sidewalk in between the telephone pole and the crappy juniper tree um, plants behind the blockbuster video I realized that I could see the tire tracks and I was standing directly in between them and I saw what I thought were stains on the sidewalk it was really traumatizing and Oddly, when I pulled into the parking lot, I, I did not see this person, but when I walked up to the place where the event occurred, I, there was a man there and we had a conversation about um, nothing really because I just wanted him to go away, but I later wondered if he was real. But what happened the following year actually was that my partner and I were looking to offer a Dipnon feast to Kati and uh, I just want to take a moment and I'm just going to call her Hikati for the ease of this conversation but it's I, I want to make aware um, to her and to you that it's not really how her name is said there's no H in Greek apparently um, so it's more like Hikati so I just so that said to honor her um, but we were going to make her feast and and we had been trying to think of a reasonable crossroads in the area where I live to bring this feast to her it was on the dark of the moon which is when her Dipnon is done every month so we were planning this feast to honor um, Hikati and uh, it just a, a tiny little bit of background on her though I I think she deserves her own episode She's kind of known as a, a, a somewhat dark and vilified figure because she does have a chthonic or underworld aspect. And she's known as the, as the goddess of witchcraft or the patroness of witches. But she actually is a much bigger, broader figure than that. She is, is a torchbearer. So she is one who sheds light and one who shows the path and she is a guide of the spirits and moves back and forth through um, this world and the next. I'll just read this quote that I found on online that's probably the easiest way to describe her. From the Hellenistic age onwards, some Greek and Roman philosophers and magicians portrayed her differently than this idea of the 
goddess of witchcraft, allotting her such duties as ensouling the cosmos and the individual men within it, forming the connective boundary between the divine and human worlds, and facilitating such communication between man and God as could lead eventually to the individual's soul release. So I think of her as like a midwife of the soul. And she's a patron of mine, of my household, and so my partner and I were doing this feast in order to honor her, which is usual, in, as far as I understand in the Hellenic tradition, to leave a feast that's really for the poor or really for the spirits of place, which can sometimes be embodied in the animals and other living creatures. And this was far after that accident that I describe, and we went to, we decided rather than go to a crossroads to leave the offering there in the place where this little girl had had died. And it was nighttime, it was probably midnight or one, and I was kneeling down at the base of this telephone pole to leave the feast offering. And I saw something glinting in the grass and I dug in between the blades of grass and I found a gold coin, uh, a pendant actually, that had the Greek key pattern around the edges and it had the Parthenon on one side and a Greek trireme, which is a, a boat on the other. And I contacted the um, Hecate uh, scholar, Sarita de Estes, to ask her about this pendant because I felt I didn't really know what to do. And I felt compelled perhaps to wear it and she suggested that that perhaps the young girl had sent it actually and was letting me know that she was a part of the retinue of the restless dead who follow um, Hecate around um, through the ether. So we had mentioned that we were going to talk about the wild hunt in this episode as well and in some um, incidences in folklore it is Hecate who leads the wild hunt and it's probably because of this um, idea or this phenomenon that there are these unsettled um, dead following behind and so I hope that one day soon Juniper and I will be able to do some work since she is such a great friend of the, the those who have passed and has ease communicating with them in spirit form that we can perhaps do something for this little girl. So that's my story. And now ladies and gentlemen, in the spirit of storytelling and the bardic tradition. I've prepared a little song for you all in my own way. This is Soul Cake. Still 
So what you just heard is a traditional English song that is sung going door to door in some parts of England and it's called Soul Cake and you may be aware that Sting did a version. Peter, Paul and Mary did a version. There are a few um, great versions out there available. We decided to include it because we want to go deeply again into the magic that is embodied and hidden and encoded inside of folk songs, folk music, folk stories, fairy tales, folklore. And the soul cake tradition is one that happens at this time of year that we're going to explain in detail later is a part of the tradition of guising, mumming, otherwise known around here as trick-or-treat. And it has a deep uh, allegorical roots in our psyche and in history and in magic that we are gonna explain. But first, wanted to reiterate something that we've mentioned before and maybe go into a little bit more detail. And that is how important it is to, I guess, take seriously and take as history, especially if you have European history, some, a lot of what we're talking about relates to, is the Bardic tradition these songs perpetuated over time because there were professional and magical people who traveled from place to place carrying the news and stories of murder and death and romance and triumph and heroism and usually these were encoded into some form of song the epic poem Tamlin that Juniper has rewritten for this episode is a great example. It tells a story in verse and there's a wonderful book by R.J. Stewart who is a lovely writer and it unpacks the story of Tamlin with far greater detail and when I first read R.J. Stewart's version of Tamlin it really made me think how these songs were an easy way to remember our history because they rhyme, because there's melody that goes along with them and rhythm. And so the words of the song are remembered and can be unpacked into a much deeper and, and more revealing tale if told by the right person. Over time, these uh, traveling bards and their tunes would be written down and eventually printed. And up into the modern time, as broadside ballads, they would be even available on street corners. So broadside ballads are one of the ways that we still have these folk songs because they told stories in verse 
Um, one of the great and interesting examples of a broadside ballad is the what's called a gallows ballad, which is a story of a murder as told from the perspective of the incarcerated murderer and is meant to be the song of lament that they sing as they are approaching their execution, uh, you know, expressing their fear of hell and retribution and being very sorry for everything they did and, and probably rarely did they actually ever even write it. Um, but these stories of these horrific events and great events could be, as I said, bought for a penny on the street corner. And related also to this tradition is the idea of song catching. I don't know sometimes if my nerdy pursuits are as common knowledge as I think they are, and I think that this is commonly understood, but I'm going to say it anyway just because it's perhaps my nerdy obsession. In the, as as many of you know, in the early 17th century, the King of England created a plantation in Ireland called Ulster, where many English and Scottish borderland nobles were given land, and also those who had run afoul of the law were transported to work. And the traditions of England sort of lived vicariously for about a hundred years in the north of Ireland, um, very uncomfortably, as we all know, there was great unrest between the Protestants and Catholics, to say the least. And at some point, the the um, Protestant folk made their way over here to the New World, and through the Port of Philadelphia, actually picking up a, a good bit of the Germanic tradition on the way, and then settled down here in the mountains of Appalachia, which were somewhat remote. And they brought with them their folk traditions, folklore, and folk songs. And about the 19th century in England, many of these folk songs had um, sort of were being forgotten and the traditions of England were being lost. And these ethnomusicologists came to Appalachia and spoke to people who uh, lived right around here, like just a few miles from where we're sitting people like uh, Olive Dame Campbell, whose uh, family started the uh, John C. Campbell Folk School, which teaches mountain craft and mountain traditions, and lots of other folks who were early settlers of this area and found that they had, in somewhat intact, maintained these ancient folk songs from England, um, Scotland, and Ireland, and were able to revive their folk traditions by gathering these songs, by song catching. There are these wonderful encyclopedias or registries of these songs that are available online if you want to really nerd out with me. Uh, one great website I love is uh, mainly Norfolk and other great music and that is a catalog of uh, folk songs and you have collectors like Cecil Sharp for example um, who put these together and there's a reason why we're we're talking about this and it really does relate back to magic because as I said earlier the meaning that is encoded in some of these songs is what we would like to unpack for you and today we're going to unpack a concept uh, that is appropriate for this time of year called the wild hunt and one of the great folklore based catalogs that I drew from in order to create this for you is the Thompson's Motif Index 
of folk literature. And so we're going to get into the wild hunt in a moment, but before we do so, Juniper would like to share a bit about how the bardic tradition and how it originated and its genesis with the Druids and a little bit of Druid lore. So the reason why I wanted to bring this focus in with the Druids is because it is so heavily steeped in magic. Song and magic go hand in hand. Story and magic go hand in hand. So I wanted to illuminate the Druidic roles, so to speak, that were given. So the Druids did many different things. They were a cast of priests and or priestesses. Both men and women could be Druids. And they did things such as rule over law. They were physicians. They were healers. They were magicians. They were ritualists. And they were also bards. They were singers and they were storytellers and they were bards. And this was a huge cast of the Druids. A huge part of what they did. They they studied for years and years and years, mostly these intricate ballads and heroic tellings of these tales and it was done in a way that brought through ritual it was done in ritual and in particular there were the philly and the bards which were two different but related casts of druids and the Philly were known not only to tell story and sing songs and entertain, they would travel around with their harps and people would hire them to come and conduct these musical rituals. And a huge part of what they did was also divination. So these were divinatory rituals that also had song and story interwoven. And I think it's really important to note that one of the connections here is that before they would begin to conduct these musical rituals, they would invoke the goddess Caradwen. As I've mentioned in other episodes, I work very closely with Caradwen. She is so dear to my heart, as you've picked up from these episodes, I am a bit of a bard myself. <laughs> so Caradwen is in Welsh mythology and the I believe it's the first branch of the Mabinogion. She is a goddess that creates this potion that contains divine wisdom. And quick side note, since we're on the subject of life, death, and places between it, Caradwen's cauldron it's said that when a baby is born, she'll take a scoop with her ladle from her cauldron and on the first breath, pour life into the baby's body. And when a soul dies, it returns to her cauldron. So cauldron is a big theme in Celtic and Welsh mythology, but Caradwen's cauldron is incredibly magical. She's a healer and she is also a soul catcher. Um, anyway, so Caradwen, has a story where she employs two people to work for her pretty much in creating this potion in order to uh, basically make one of her children a better person 
or a better deity. And I might have told this story before, but just in case, a quick summary is that one of the people that she employs to help her with the cauldron, basically, if any bit of the cauldron is spilled, any bit of the potion is spilled, it is no longer usable for her use. The person that she has stirring the cauldron for a year and a day gets, at the very end, when the year and the day is up, gets three drops spilled onto him, and through the pain of the heat of the cauldron, of the potion, puts his hand in his mouth and is imbued with the divine wisdom that she is trying to give to her child. And so there's this huge chase scene, and basically the end of the chase scene, she ends up ingesting him as he's a piece of grain and she becomes a hen and he grabs on to her womb and begins to gestate. It's it's a rebirthing process, so to speak. So she's angry and every day she's telling this this child within her that she's going to kill it once it's born because she is still so angry and he knows he's very aware <laughs> in her womb very conscious and very aware and he's very frightened you know of her wrath so anyway when the day comes that he's finally born she can't help but with her mother's love to love him and she sews him up in this basket with skin sews him up in skin and sends him off to sea where he's found by two fishermen and raised and becomes Taliesin the Bard. Taliesin the Bard is who actually becomes the Merlin in our tales of King Arthur. So Taliesin's main magic was that of song and he would travel around with a harp and this is known in a lot of stories of druids traveling around with their harps. So Caradwin is the mother of Taliesin the Bard and known as the Gifter of Awen, which I believe I probably have mentioned in a previous episode, but Awen translates to the divine inspiration to create. And she's also known as the divine muse. So the druids would invoke Caradwin before performing these musical rituals. And it sounds like, um, you mentioned divination, so it sounds like they were also hoping that these spontaneously inspired aspects of what they were doing would also be prophetic. Yes. Caradwin's also a goddess of witches, like Egate. I hope I said that correctly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Well, she's also a goddess of witches and magic. Her cauldron contains magic. It's a ritual container, just mm. as we've described. And it contains life force. Awesome. Janet sat up in her room, sewing her needle and thread, when she remembered the tales she heard of blooms of roses red. Her green kilt she tied above her knee and braided her yellow hair, and off she went to Carter Hall to find these roses fair. There she came upon a steed, so white and strong was he. Among the bush of rose he stood, and so enchanted was she, that she plucked a rose from its bough and went to pluck another. 
When young Tamlin did appear and bade her pluck no other, why have you come to Carter Hall without my given word? Carter Hall is mine, she said, by my father's sword. To come and go from Carter Hall, you must leave a pledge: your golden rings, or mantle green, or else your maidenhead. Then Janet left from Carter Hall to her father's house, met by her ladies twenty-four with skin as pale as milk. Her father's men were playing chess when they saw her skin so green, and seeing their chance to rule the land, asked her hand to be. Hold your tongues, you gray old knights! My babe, you shall not claim. Then her father saw and spoke. What father do you name? My love is not an earthly knight, but one of elven gray. I will not have one of your lords, and it's I that shall have the say. So Janet ran to Carter Hall to pluck a poison bloom. When Tamlin did appear to his love and begged her do no doom, for he was mortal but enslaved to the queen of Fay. And on the seventh year of Hallow's Eve, it was he to hell they pay. If you will help me break the spell, your husband I will be. But my dear, you must not fear the changes that you see. On that night, hold close to me and do not release your grip, for she will change as I appear. But it shall only be a trick. So on Hallow's Eve, she went to him and wrapped her arms round tight. To snake, then wolf, then lion, he changed, but never did she fright. And angry was the fairy queen as her enchantment had been lifted. You have won my finest knight, she said, as to a man he shifted. Away they fled upon his steed from the queen of fay, but she still seeks on Hallow's Eve a soul to hell to pay. What you just heard was the story of Tamlin. And Tamlin is a story that originates in Scotland. And not only is the story of the Wild Hunt, as we will be getting into in a moment here, but also the story of female empowerment. I just want to bring this little bit up to the surface because I find it so interesting how Tamlin is in Carter Hall and there's a warning already out that young maidens should not go to Carter Hall wearing uh, their less than nothing but yeah they're <laughs> with, their, with their kirtles girded up yes they are they would be in danger because young Tam Lin was there and required an offering of either their golden rings or green mantle or their maidenhead so we can get into the symbolism there, but I'll just leave it at Janet. Janet was a rebel, and I love her. I just love her. Agreed. Because <laughs> she, she decided she wanted to get buck wild. She was like, I know I'm not supposed to go to Carter Hall, but guess what? I'm going to tie my green kilt above my knee and braid my yellow hair. There was a warning, folks. She knew what she was getting into. And I'm going to go meet the wild spirit of the, of the forest. A.K.A. get wild with the spirit of the forest. Hmm, okay. So I, I, that's my perspective, that I think she knew what she was doing. And... 
picking the roses, if you think of the symbolism of a rose, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a flower. You know, we think of the words deflowering, for instance, the virginity, the maidenhead, offering your maidenhead. Like, she knew what she was doing. She picked those flowers. You know, and I also like that she was so feisty when she becomes pregnant and they all notice, all all of her father's men playing chess notice that she's pregnant and see her skin so green because she's got morning sickness and offer to marry her because they're like, oh, well, we can be king. And she's like, no, F you, gray old knights. No, my love is actually an elf, and he lives in Carter Hall, so... And who doesn't want to, like, get with an elf? Right? I mean... That's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so then she goes back to Carter Hall, because she's like, well, I mean, if he's an elf, I obviously can't marry him because he's an elf, you know, he's not mortal. And so she's like, well... I guess I'll abort this baby. She takes it upon herself. I mean, she pro-choice, man. My body, my choice. She goes out and she picks a poison rose. The ballads are very clear that she's doing this to have an abortion. And then that's when Tamlin interferes and he's like, actually, I'm mortal. So, you know, let's actually get married. But you got to break the spell first um, because I'm enslaved to the fairy queen. And... Something I wanted to bring up, you mentioned transportation earlier in the episode. Transportation lasted for seven years. And I think there's a correlation with the number seven. Very alchemical. Mm-hmm. I think there's a correlation with the number seven, in, in, especially in the British Isles, in that, in that tradition. I mean, seven years of punishment, right? And he was enslaved to the fairy queen for seven years. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right? And he was about to be paid to hell. Right, at which time she owes a tithe to hell. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I just really think it's interesting how Janet, Janet again, she's the hero. She's so brave. And this is, you know, we're talking medieval times of a woman who is the heroine. And I just think it's so inspiring that this became so popular. I will say that in Scotland, I think they were a little more lax with the roles between men and women. Obviously not where we are today, but in medieval times, um, from what the research I've done shows that the woman had at least a little more power. Um, You know, for instance, I think I read recently while we were researching this that um, 20% of women who were married were already pregnant when they were getting married. So anyway, Tamlin's story of female empowerment and dun 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 The Wild Hunt. Alright, so I'm gonna go into this and this is my way of or I should say our way of demonstrating to you how we think that these powerful, magical um, clues can be unearthed from our folk history, folk song, and folklore, okay? (laughs) So, the Wild Hunt. It is a concept of 
Riders in the sky. That's that's probably the the best uh, North American correlation. Ghost riders in the sky. It's the idea that there is at certain times of the year hosts of supernatural beings flying through the air. And as I mentioned earlier in the Thompson's Motif Index of Folk Literature, there are, and, and you don't make it into this index unless you're a concept of, of great breadth and, you know, found ubiquitously. So the wild hunt in Germany was referred to as the wild army, in Scandinavia as Odin's hunters, in Norway as the noisy riders or the ride of Asgard, or in Sweden, the hunt of Odin or the wild hunt, in Old English, uh, Woden's hunt, Herod's hunt, Cain's hunt, in Cornwall, the devil's dandy dogs. Uh, there's all kinds of relationships with hell. In Wales, and I'm going to probably terribly, like to everyone's chagrin, attempt the Welsh here. Gwyn ap noith, I believe is how it is said. Uh, and he's a, a figure, you know, very prominent in Welsh folklore, is depicted as a wild huntsman riding a demon horse who hunts souls at night, along with a pack of white-bodied and red-eared dogs of hell. And the wild hunt shows up in the Slavic countries as well, in Spain, as the uh, deadly retinue or the war company there or the old army often seen as um, soldiers in the sky. From that folklore index there is a huge list of a hundred different mentions of the wild hunt in folklore with a king as the wild huntsman, a nobleman, a forester, a freemason, a saint, Hecate, Artemis, knights, ladies, witches, courtesans, churchmen, soldiers. So it kind of brings to mind the the way that in uh, Dias de los Muertos where everyone is depicted with the calavera, with the skull face. So it's like all of these beings show up in the wild hunt because they are all entities um, identifiable in life. Folklore around the wild hunt includes ideas like uh, the wild huntsman cannot die until evil in the world has been made right and things return as they have been. There are dogs with fiery tongues, with fiery eyes, black dogs, three-legged dogs, winged dogs, horses that breathe fire, fiery eyes, two-legged horses, headless horses, boars and owls. Unbaptized children are pursued by the wild hunt. Animals pursued by them, hares, deer, Wild huntsmen are headless, with deer heads, with heads on backwards, carrying skulls under their arms, entrails stringing from open bodies. Wild huntsmen dressed in ancient costume. Wild hunt appears every seven years. Wild hunt appears in the woods, in the churchyard, at the crossroads, by a body of water, by a hill or mountain, old battlefield over the city. With the rattle of chains, with the clash of swords, with the ringing of bells, with the baying of hounds, shouts of huntsmen, storm and fire. So, in short, the Wild Hunt is a host of supernatural beings that carouse across the sky. This time of year, the three days around what we know as Halloween are recognized in the Catholic Church as All Hallowtide. It is a time of commemorating and honoring the dead and especially the murdered saints. And interestingly, this holiday used to take place, or this, I shouldn't call it a holiday, this commemorative event, um, probably there was much liturgy around it, uh, used to be on Walpurgisnacht, which is May Eve, 
which in Germany was the night where it was believed that the witches cavorted with Satan and did all those things that you're not supposed to, to do up there on a mountain with Satan. All the things that got you in trouble and burned at the stake. But they moved it to Samhain or to Halloween to October 31st, November 1st. And I think it's valuable to note the relationship of this time of year to the dead, to the Fae, that the idea that the supernatural energies come close or even into our world, and what would their purpose be? It's a liminal time, as you often hear, where it is, again, seen through folk traditions, a time of contact with the dead. There's some interesting folklore. You know, I didn't do any specific research about ghosts in general. Uh, because we only have so much time, but I did want to point out an interesting relationship that arises in different traditions between the Fae and the dead. In Daniel Four's ancestral lineage healing tradition and in Robin Artisan's book and Caro Gwyn is the idea of the human soul passing into natural features. And I think, you know, once said, it doesn't seem all that alien that, oh, this rock is haunted by, quote unquote, or imbued with the spirit of this person who was a hero in this area, or this event happened, or passing into a tree, a stone, a river, or other natural feature. And it creates a nexus point for the intersection of supernatural powers, the Fae, the dead, and also underscores the concept of the animate nature of the natural world. Um, in Robin Artisan's book, and I know he's somewhat of a controversial figure, so you'll forgive me if I go ahead and say publicly that I think he's brilliant. He has a quote in his chapter in our Carol Gwynn about the host and haunting spirits that I really love. When humans hunt, it is for enjoyment and sustenance. When the fateful powers or spirits hunt, it is a depiction of deeper forces striving to bring about certain transformations in the world. And in folk tradition, there are several remedies and ways of either avoiding the wild host and wild hunt and its effects. For example, parades with lots of clamor and noise. You think about Krampus, and there is a pretty big relationship between this time of year, which is Samhain across quarter day, and winter solstice, which is the next major point in the wheel. Hiding by changing your identity to appear as one of the supernatural beings. Uh, and that's something I think growing up in America we hear a lot is, oh, you know, you wear scary masks at Halloween because the idea used to be that you were going to confuse the, the negative spirit, the bad spirits, the evil spirits um, by looking like one of them. So you were going incognito right? And the donning of the costume is becoming, in essence, what I think could be referred to as a grotesque. Grotesques are, it's an architectural term actually, though it does show up in other forms of craft and furniture and painting ornamentation, but it's the scary faces on the sides of buildings that are intended to deflect and um, protect from evil spirits. Uh, other forms of dealing with the wild hunt include mumming, guising, and we're going to talk about trick-or-treating as an example because that leads into the concept of appeasing the wild hunt, appeasement. An, an example of this appeasement is the concept of trick-or-treating or soul-caking. 
So in, is soul caking is an English tradition. So going door to door, and it was usually children or the poor, and ostensibly they are begging on behalf of the dead, carrying their lanterns made of hollowed out turnips with candles inside with faces representing the souls in purgatory, receiving the bread that is intended for the dead with little X's on top that show that they are alms. And a couple of the lines from the song that uh, we had earlier in the episode, a soul cake, a soul cake, please good misses a soul cake, an apple, a pear, a plum, a cherry, any good thing to make us merry. God bless your house and all that dwell within your gates as we wish you 10 times more. So the spirits were offering a tenfold return for this um, gift. So the host, the wild hunt, may be appeased with food and drink is um, what this tradition is based on. There is a similar tradition. Some of these happen during Yuletide and some of them happen during Samhain. Uh, one really obscure one that I am totally surprised that I hadn't heard about before is called the Hoodening Horse. It is similar in tradition to a better known Welsh tradition that I'm going to say the way that I used to pronounce it because you'll probably recognize it more readily called uh, and it's the Mary Lewid but it's actually pronounced the Varichloid. It is a horse skull uh, atop a stick with a sheet over the person carrying the skull and there's a dreadful clapping that happens and there are a couple of other versions of this type of tradition old ball is one old tup you know it could be a horse head or a goat head and it's the same thing they go door to door they demand treats they demand sustenance ale or cakes or food of some kind and the the beggars are actually serving a holy purpose so here, here's where we get into extrapolation territory. So everything prior to what I just said is fact, and now we're getting into Priscilla Breen. So these beggars are going about on behalf of these supernatural forces, donning the disguise of the supernatural force, have in fact taken it upon themselves to engage in an act of deep allegorical significance. It's a veil-crossing communion because they are playing the role of outcast gods. So everything that is not a part of the current Christian monotheistic philosophy mindset and power structure, let's just go ahead and say it, um, is of course demonified. And that includes the deities that existed well before the Judeo-Christian um, construct or deities came into play in you know the Near East. So these mummers and geysers are, are, are really playing the role and, and allowing themselves to not only act as the agents for the dead, but to become as these gods um, in guise form and to allow the gods to become them. They are receiving a tithe or offering on behalf of the dead, which is a sacrifice as a part of allowing these households the opportunity to lessen their karma, to clear their energetic debt before they go into the dark time of year. It's a way of asking for the protection and the blessing of the dead and of these supernatural forces and gods in actuality. 
and the soul cake is given as an offering to the dead and a way of honoring and of course the spirits offer a return of tenfold as I said and a neat one in Mexico is um, the the concept of the calav calaverita where the kids say can you give me my little skull and receive a sugar skull in return so you know just to kind of underscore this idea of things being vilified in the in the West and to bring it back to our theme I want to put out there the idea that the wild hunt is one of those things that it is vilified and we are taught over hundreds of years and through the reiteration of songs and and folklore and stories words of warning that we are to avoid the wild hunt at all costs because the good and evil scenario is a necessary part of the Christian philosophy and I am just gonna say right now it is a fallacy I think we know this but its intention is to separate us from our own supernatural capacity and to separate us from agents that may be able to connect us with the realms of the supernatural what the wild hunt does at this time of year is it unsettles our identity it forces us to take on these transmuting faces of the gods and of these other energies that are so unfamiliar and allow us passage into places of deep transformation it shakes up our self-concept it shakes up our roles and our positions and it begins to give us the capacity to touch in on taboos that we unconsciously or consciously carry about non-corporeal entities about good and evil about nature the dead, the animate spirits uh, that surround us and, and ourselves. And so we become, as the energies of the trickster and those that live in the margins of illuminated manuscripts and of stories that monkey around, that hold open a gate to the liminal to enter into spaces that are unknown and, and ununderstood. And so as a ritual prescription and in the spirit of the idea that the wild hunt offers us transformation and that its host guides us into our deeper uh, you know occluded natures and the knowledge thereof is that October and November as they approach can be a time of powerful ritual acts agreements in blood sacrifices poured tithings and offerings made, stepping up to the altar of your own truth, turning attention toward the source through the gate of death, releasing of the excess of energies, settling of accounts, purification and preparing for the time of going deep within, deep into the dark, and connecting with those beloved dead who can show us the way through prayers, honoring, and communion. And, and so, so it is. is. And who doesn't want to, like, get with an elf? Right? I mean... That's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>